So, the first guest we have for the first half of our Chuseok special show, Second Home, a new chapter, is Nogol Sawood, a board of director for the Oceania region of Campaign for Uyghurs. Let's welcome Ms. Sawood on the line, joining us from Australia. Thank you very much for taking the time. My pleasure. Thanks. So, you, you actually visited Seoul three months ago, didn't you, to attend a human rights seminar titled The Long Arm of the Dragon, China's Persecution of Believers at Home and Abroad. How did that go? It went really well because um, the mostly all the refugees who uh, gathered at the conference is mainly from China and who's either persecuted or oppressed by um, Chinese CCP, Communist Party. So it's very good space and as well as platform to discuss how everyone's experience. We had myself and some church organization, Chinese um, Christian church organization, and also we have a advocacy, the people too. It's a very good platform where we sharing our own experience of how we trying to advocate for our rights uh, abroad as an insider. Whereas, on the other hand, you're also hearing from some international organization like Human Rights Frontier and A Bit of Winter and how they're actually watching this landscape, how they're actually advocating some of the issues we're going through right now in international platform. I personally find that that's very balanced presentation as well as shared experience for a whole day, really. Can you... Tell us a little bit more about your experience of resettling in Australia as a refugee and some of the great challenges and perhaps more smooth aspects of that. My experience coming to Australia, settling in Australia, I would say it's reasonably okay and a smooth process um, because Australian government still generously accept Uyghur refugees around the world and whoever is coming, whether it's onshore or offshore, my progress very much is onshore a protection uh, process. So I was very much inside Australia when I have actually received a protection from Australian government. So I do appreciate that whole process. But many people from offshore, is they're not that lucky. It would be helpful for us to understand what you actually had to flee from. We've probably, um, many of us, come across um, news stories, but can you put it into words for us? Um, at the time, uh, don't get me wrong, the where I work and my work position and where are my social steps inside of China, it's much, much better than many, many people. And I wasn't actually economically, politically uh, discriminated because I was one of those symbolic case, China showcase where they say, hey, have a look, you know, we've got minority ethnic groups, you know, we employ, we use, and it's such important position. So therefore, as a person who's working for government, I cannot compare myself with someone who's absolutely going through it. It's a horrendous, horrible experience back home in Xinjiang. So my experience is very much how you have to act and do what you're told. And as time goes by, and that's where my frustration, even almost like a depression, a type of suffocation coming from. For me, I need to get out of there. I don't want to be this mimic monkey anymore. I don't want to be told what I need to do, how I need to act uh, in a platform. So that's how I left Beijing. 
But am I right in saying at least 12 members of your family have been taken to camps or just disappeared? Um, I really don't know the latest numbers. That was my calculation last year, November 2018. Back then, as I pretty much started my campaign and I'm pretty much outspoken internationally about the mass detention internment camp and now we're quite comfortably even internationally using the word concentration camp. I started close the campaign so the when just about to going into end of October I had received those funny message from Chinese authority if I don't stop my activity all my relatives, which is my two sisters, my mum, as well as my dad's side of relatives, uh, will be detained indefinitely. And of course, I didn't stop. And I said, no, I'm not going to listen to you. As a matter of fact, we don't trust CCP anymore. They will do whatever they want. It's clearly this is like a long-distance, threatening intimidation that's what they're doing to so many other families and it's nothing new when it comes to me and it's exactly the same so i decide not to listen i ignored their message we keep doing what we're doing then um the, pretty much they moved on all the attack online even sometimes intimidating where i leave to me those kind of intimidation never stopped i believe at a time my mum and my sisters all relocated. I don't know where they've been relocated. And uh, I cannot ring any of my relatives or anyone who I know just to find out where they are exactly. Are they in or out? And uh, this is the one thing. And uh, secondly, and uh, Chinese authority quite actually keen me to ring my relatives and whoever I know. Clearly, I know this is a trap because my phone constantly gets attacked. My laptop constantly gets attacked. The cyber attack is any time. As soon as there's a slightly bigger campaign or bigger thing happens, constantly I feel I'm under the watch. So therefore, the moment I ring them or do, and that they will catch that person, I'm actually very much in the position to put someone else at risk. It's horrifyingly similar to the the North Korea situation that we often hear about, but China doesn't get the same reputation quite as North Korea's regime, even though people do seem to be growing more and more suspicious of Xi Jinping's regime. But I'd like to finish by just asking you what your eventual goal would be. Would your dream be to be settling again in China, specifically in the Xinjiang region, or would would you like to just have Australia as your home from now on? Um. For time being, I would say Australia is my home and this is my adopted country. But in terms of whether I will continue to fight for the people um, the back home, yes, of course I will. Until the moment China changes their mind, their way they behave. And it's, look, you know, I want to learn, I want to how to make a peace with the world and live in harmony with, uh, you know, the rest of the world. I want to stop the current regime, that's the moment probably they might have any glimpse of light and the hope will happen. Until then, we cannot stop. For me, at the moment, there's a lot of argument, there's discussion, what's next, it's happening, and um, back and forth questions thrown out 
to government to government, even like Western democracy, where they should stand up and do something. And as you can see from U.S. Human Rights Commission assembly a month and a half ago, um, it didn't look too good. And so there's only 24 countries actually really up against China. Say so you need to close those camps. They really put their names together and spoke up against China, whereas there's nearly 40 countries and they're actually supporting China. So that's why the UN Human Rights Commission, as well as the functionality, I would say it's already lost its effectiveness. And there's something else has to happen, more security level. In three weeks down track, there's a UN Assembly and all the executive members of the Security Council will catch up in New York I was wondering whether they actually open to have an uh, urgent uh, meeting at UN uh, Security Council urgent meetings to discuss all the issues, what's happening to us, and, as well as uh, Hong Kong. And uh, Hong Kong, it is nothing different from what is happening to us. It's only difference is Hong Kong people can freely get up to the street, actually do rally up against the police atrocity, how they're behaving and are still arresting, you know, hurting people. That's the only difference. In our case, we cannot go to the street. We did in back in 2009. Mm-hmm. Now is the point is nearly 3 million people in the camp. There's other 2 million people going through this brainwashing indoctrination in every day. So the main part of our society is completely taken away, is broken. There are so many echoes of some of the horrors of history in your story it's just shocking that it's happening today but we do have to leave it there miss nagel sawood a board of director member for the oceania region of the campaign for uyghurs thank you for sharing that with us my pleasure we should speak for those who are unable and fight for those who are unwilling We are all searching for our own paradise. Let them search and let us live. A place we can find ourselves and a place we can call home. Paradise. The voice there of Neil George, documentary director. Rather soothing. Good morning to you. Good morning to you. But not that soothing in terms of the topic. Um, mm, right. if, I mean, your work in the past dealt mm-hmm. with the very tough subjects, for example, of the Selwell Ferry disaster. We yeah. spoke to you about that before. Yeah. Um, you, you had the film Crossroads and After Selwell. Mm-hmm. How's the reaction been to that, by the way? Yeah, very good. We're still working on like the distribution now of Crossroads, so that should hopefully be released at the end of this year for more people to, to watch. And in, in many ways, you gave a voice, a global voice, to those uh, children who and, and other victims mm-hmm. of the Selwell disaster who obviously having passed away, would never be able to raise them. Um, But in the spirit of also providing a voice to those who, for whatever reason, can't speak for themselves, you've also become a focal point of the refugee crisis here. Some 560 Yemeni refugees landed on Jeju Island, fleeing war at home. Immediately after the influx, society struggled with uh, xenophobia. What was it 
particular i mean of all the stories that you could have mm. moved on to and all the suffering and the injustice in the world what was it about this particular story that drew you in i think initially it was the kind of reaction from the korean people i was a little bit surprised at their negativity towards like when the refugees first came in and the protesting on the street my producer kim hangul he was really interested in why they reacted like this and he wanted to kind of find out a bit more about these refugees so that was initially like the main interest just to kind of learn their stories a little bit more yeah. you like me will be fairly familiar with korean society the way mm. that actually there is this very strong korean identity and yeah. even being a welcome foreigner you're mm-hmm. still kind of other <laughs> uh but to be a uh, someone who's escaping a war-torn country most likely muslim mm-hmm. different ethnicity you couldn't have been entirely surprised that people weren't uh, opening their arms to that no i wasn't surprised i was a little bit taken aback at the strength of the negativity i thought that they would have a little bit more understanding towards mm. a country that was going through this like war you know career has also been through a war itself so there was i was hoping for a little more empathy i guess from from the local people which i didn't like i think nobody actually really saw do you think they were influenced by some of the negative stories coming from europe of refugees escaping the middle east do you think that was a, a big factor i think a lot of people in korea don't really have a great grasp on refugees in general to be honest that could go for the foreigners as well living in korea and other countries even myself i didn't understand fully the situation that would had happened in yemen until i started looking into it more deeply and talking to the refugees so understandably you can see it both ways like the reaction could have been a little bit strong in the way that they did but like you said they wanted to kind of defend themselves and they didn't want to see this islamophobia i guess like coming in too much they didn't want to see terrorists if they were so-called terrorists the government's reaction i felt was very bad they didn't treat the refugees too well and mm. they didn't try to get a better understanding and if you look at the history between yemen and korea there's a long history between the two countries so they had a really good opportunity to actually explain to the korean people look we've had a history with this country this is what's happened try to understand a little bit more actually since 2018 when that happened and probably till now we've seen a change i think we've seen a change in the mentality of the korean people they've come to have more of an understanding but the media seems to play a big role as well yeah, unfortunately i think the biggest thing for me was nobody really heard from the refugees that much so we didn't get to learn their stories and can you share some of those stories with us I mean the stories were wide and varied you know there was chefs from who had been living there there was a, a young boxer kickboxer who'd actually come to Korea before in the Asian games he was also imprisoned in Yemen for refusing to join the rebels he was one of the few that managed to escape in 2018 and he went to then Malaysia and then he came into Korea and his story is very similar to a lot of the other stories fleeing persecution effectively what were some of the biggest obstacles they faced was it being muslim that was the primary problem we've already reflected i think on the media opposition mm. they faced but what what do you think was the most difficult thing for them yeah i think probably religion was one factor food another like general cultural issues language 
they couldn't communicate too well. But I mean, in Jeju, when we visited Jeju, they had a, a fairly good base, and a lot of the groups on Jeju, the religious groups and the uh, like agencies that were trying to help, they were doing the best that they could. But I think what we saw was they didn't really know initially how to react. And so the, the bigger problem came about that they didn't know how to deal with these Muslim refugees. They didn't really know what to kind of feed them, like how they're going to deal with the living situations. And many of them ended up with no money. They couldn't get a job. So they ended up, you know, some even ended up sleeping in gardens because they didn't have anywhere else to go. And that kind of caused a lot of issues with the local people. They, as you say, had many different types of background, but mm. some of them were clearly able to offer quite a lot if they'd been given the opportunity to do that uh, mm -hmm. based on their career history. But instead, they end up, in some cases, for example, having to leave Jeju Island, go and work at a shipyard at Not South both. Jolla yeah. province. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, the problem was initially when they were offered some jobs, which was after about six months, they were only offered manual labor type jobs so we're looking at things like fishing farming manufacturing industry and construction at that time and they coming from a country where perhaps those weren't what they actually studied or what they had any interest in so that was a very difficult time for probably both the local people and the Yemeni refugees trying to find a balance in using the skills that they might have had and then obviously like you said when the the border was somewhat opened up and they were allowed to come into the mainland after they received their visas. Most of them, again, were very limited to the kind of work spaces that they were allowed to go into and ended up in places like Mokpo, Busan, uh, Gimpo, and only limited to working in manufacturing, effectively. Yeah. Well, on behalf of all those refugees and many who are finding out more about it, thank you for shedding a light on their story. Uh, earlier this year, you did also produce a video for UNHCR featuring the first Yemeni restaurant on Jeju Island mm -hmm. called Wada. And um, it's run by a couple that got married in April this year. Perhaps this story is tainted by some of the fear that people had. You've got a Korean wife and a Yemeni husband. Mm. And we are going to be speaking with uh, UNHCR's Korea representative. Yeah. Um, but... Can you just briefly finish on that note uh, for us and tell us how this example shines through? Yeah, I mean, that was a very positive example of integration. And she actually was a Korean musician and had a music studio, which she opened up to allow the refugees to sleep in when there was like limited space and the refugees had no money. And obviously, the two of them had a very good connection. And of course, the food that was available in Jeju, as, as you're well aware, Korean food, there's pork, they can't eat pork. So they were very limited to the amount of food that they were allowed to kind of eat based off their like diets and religion. And so she obviously came up with this idea to work with him and some other partners in creating this restaurant, not just for the, the Yemeni refugees, but also for other people to come and learn more about Yemen, come and learn more about the Middle East and try some of the food, which is, you know, very positive. I think that's a really positive element. Well, hopefully it's an example that will also inform any future situations of this kind. Mm -hmm. As well, your work will. People will be able to check it out. Just quickly, how can people look into your documentaries? Sure, like the three films will actually be showing at the Seoul International Film Festival on the 22nd of September. 
So anyone that's in Itaewon area, they can come and check those out. No tickets needed to come and watch them. Nice. Yeah. I'm in the Itaewon area. Oh, top by. <laughs> Neil George, director of uh, Family, Hope and Passion, the documentary series. Thank you very much for being here today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you.